all the kids that I have met with autism, they are a living example of a good human being. Like all the things that you want a good person to have, they already have it. You know, he's kind of taught us all to calm down a little bit and reflect on, you know, why we react to things the way that we do, just because he's always had these big reactions to things. But it goes the other way, too, where we say, okay, well, I'm having a reaction. Why am I reacting this way? So we all we all do it. So I think we've all benefited from the skills that we try to teach him. They are truthful. They are authentic. They are very connected to themselves, not with the outer world, but with their inside. They are very connected. Just seeing things a bit differently. We'll be walking and she'll see those planes in the sky that are just little white dots like always oh there's a plane I'm, I can't hear it I there's how do you see that like she just suddenly sees something like that so. I, I've heard the term before here today superpowers I would say their ability to focus on a specific task for extended periods of time is very robust the level of honesty or following the rules, or just in terms of as an employee uh, mindset that they would, you know, be a great employee. You know, I sometimes like have friends or whatever, and they'll talk about their teenagers out until midnight and stuff like that. And I'm just like, what is that even like? That is so far out of my experience, right? Like he's such a great kid. Like he makes me worry about other things, but he never makes me worry about like, is he safe? Where is he? Like that's never ever in question. He's so great. Tolerance towards everything in life, like patience, tolerance, empathy, kindness, and lots of seeing people through different eyes, accepting differences, which are things that our world needs now, but he taught me all these things, and I feel like blessed. I appreciate that authenticity and that filterless approach at times, and getting to sort of things a lot quicker. <laughs> you know, he's a giant nerd, and I love that about him so much. When he was much younger, he was reading Garfield, and we had this conversation about how Garfield would call John a nerd, you know, and how that was kind of derogatory. And then we had this conversation about how today nerds are cool, like Mark Zuckerberg and all these guys that make so much money in today's world. And so, you know, to some degree, the world has changed a little bit, and this is a good time for him to be alive. It's a good time for him to be who he is today because his superpowers are going to be so in demand, I think. Those are some parents from our Autism Parents Roundtable. We hear so much about the challenges faced by people with autism. It's really easy to lose sight of the remarkable strides they've made in all corners of society, from technology to music to farming. Bill Gates, Albert Einstein, Greta Thunberg, Stanley Kubrick, Daryl Hannah, Nikola Tesla, David Byrne, Jerry Seinfeld, Emily Dickinson, these are just a few of the incredibly successful people who are known or thought to be on the spectrum. Welcome to Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Benison. I'm also known as mom to my two daughters, Charlotte and Sophie. Sophie has autism. This week, we're talking about success on the spectrum. Now, of course, our parent and teen roundtables have 
plenty to say on this topic. But first, we're going to hear from one of the most inspiring people in the autism community, Temple Grandin. Because of her autism, Temple Grandin didn't speak until she was three and a half years old. And when she was young, she was teased and bullied in school. But she found friends with shared interests like horses, model rockets, and electronics. And she had a science teacher who became a key mentor. Today, Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She also has a successful consulting business. Her main focus is livestock handling and animal welfare, and she's a world expert in these areas. In fact, today, over half the cattle in North America are handled in humane systems that she designed. Dr. Grandin is a prominent author and a public speaker who lectures worldwide on autism and animal handling. She's been featured in the New York Times on 60 Minutes and in a popular TED Talk. Her life is also the subject of an award-winning film. Temple Grandin is an inspiration to families everywhere who are living with autism, including ours. Dr. Grandin, thank you so much for joining us. It's really good to be here. You have achieved enormous success in spite of the obstacles you faced growing up. And if you look back on your childhood, what were the key supports that really helped you? Well, first of all, I went into really good speech therapy uh, very young. Uh, there was also a lot of attention on turn-taking games when I was maybe four, five years old. A lot of these kids have got to learn how to wait and take their turns. Mother had a very good um, sort of feel on how to stretch me. It's a tendency sometimes to overprotect and coddle these kids. Mm -hmm. She was always stretching me but giving me choices. And by about third grade, it became obvious I was good at art. And she encouraged me to draw lots of different things, not just do the same horse head over and over again. Another thing that was helpful is I'm a child of the 50s. And in the 50s, social skills were taught to all kids in a much more structured way. You were taught to say please and thank you. You were taught to take turns uh, talking. We had sit-down meals. All of this stuff was very, very helpful, you know, especially when I was in elementary school. And because autism is so rule-based, I guess that's why it, was, it helped you be successful in well, learning. One of the things I'm observing now, and I've been observing this a lot in the last five or six years when I go to autism conferences, is a lot of grandparents come up to me. Grandparents that have been in decent careers, accounting, engineering, banking, whole lot of different careers, and they are discovering that they are probably on the spectrum when the grandchildren get diagnosed. Then the granddad will go, oh, or even the grandmother will go, oh, well, that's why I was kind of weird and I never got along. Because the other thing that that grandparent had is when he was 11 or she was 11, there were paper routes. Children had jobs. They learned how to work before they graduated from high school. That's another really important key thing. Because you had a job as a seamstress when you were 13 years old. That's right. It was a job that Mother just got in the neighborhood. It was during the summer. It was a couple of afternoons a week. And Mother, you know, um, saw a lady who worked out of her house doing freelance seamstressing. And I uh, took apart dresses. And then she'd pin them, and then I would hand hem them for her. And at first I volunteered, but then I was really helpful to her. She started paying me. And I loved the money that I got from it. This yes. brings up another thing. A lot of kids don't understand money. And the reason why I understood money is when I was a little kid, I got 50 cents a week for allowance. And, and if I did some other jobs, maybe I could earn some more. 
But I knew exactly what 50 cents could buy. And in the 50s, it was a lot. I could do um, 10 candy bars or I could get five comics with it. But if I wanted a 69-cent airplane, I had to save for two weeks. I was learning that at a very young age. Uh, in other words, I learned the meaning of money by what 50 cents could buy. And then when my sister and I wanted to go uh, blow it all on games at the county fair, we'd save up, uh, you know, like a couple of dollars or maybe a dollar fifty, and play carnival games for a dime apiece. Right. You see, that's converting that money to something that's not abstract. And I'll never forget when I learned what $20 was worth. Because my favorite thing when I was a kid, I had a table hockey game. This was a really good thing because you have to play it with somebody else to make table hockey fun. But I saw it in the window of the toy store, and it cost like $21. Well, then I understood that that was almost a year's worth of allowance. (laughs) So a $20 bill got changed into a hockey game. Right. You see, that makes money real. Absolutely. And kids are not doing that today. Let's find paper route replacements. How about walk dogs for the neighbors? It's really important for the children to learn how to do a task on a schedule outside the family. It's somebody else's dog. They have to walk every morning at 7 or 6 o'clock in the morning. How about volunteer jobs? It could be at a house of worship. It could be at a farmer's market. Uh, It could be washing cars, uh, something that they do for somebody else. But I like things that are done on a regular basis, where every Thursday night there's a social event and the kid has to work on preparing the food. Yeah, because the schedule is so important for kids on the spectrum. Well, they've got to learn. And the other thing that I was taught in the 50s was being on time. A lot of students in college that go into college that have autism are having problems with getting up in the morning and being on time. I had a lot of social problems in college, but being on time and losing homework was not one of my problems because this being on time was pounded in when I was a young kid. We had sit-down meals and and we weren't allowed to bring toys or books to the table. Now the electronic devices need to get put away for some sit-down meals. Mm-hmm. That would help a lot. Yeah, that's what happens at our house. So if we Good. move to when you were a little bit older, when you were in your teen years, what were some of the key supports that helped you then? Well, I, I did high school was a complete mess for me. I got kicked out of high school for fighting. I threw a book at a girl who bullied me. Aww. My parents uh, found us, my mother's, found a special school for me to go to for, you know, kids with problems. And, and when I look back on it, most of those kids probably had autism. I was not the least bit interested in studying. Now, one of the things they did not allow there was becoming a recluse in my room. I had to attend meals. I had to attend chapel. I had to attend movie night. And, okay, not studying was okay, but I had to do something to join in. So they put me to work uh, t- running the horse barn and uh, cleaning stalls. So mm-hmm. every day I had nine stalls to clean horses to feed and horses to put in and out of the stalls, out to pasture. And I was good at doing that job, and I was proud of the fact that basically I ran their horse barn for three years. Didn't do much studying. What I did learn is I learned how to work from that. Also, um, Mr. Patey, the headmaster, said, well, that will get me through my adolescence. That was something that's important. And then the last year of high school is when Mr. Carlock, my super wonderful mentor science teacher, came on the scene. And he gave me interesting projects to do. And now I got knuckled down and I started studying. Because now studying was a pathway to a goal. It mm-hmm. wasn't just to study for the sake of studying. It was to study so I could become a scientist. That's important. And he recognized that in you. Yeah. What did your mentors do that was different than others? Well, I, well, let's look at Mr. Carlock, my science teacher. 
I was really interested in, you know, visual optical illusions. You probably saw in the movie how yes. I got interested in that Ames optical illusion room. And they actually showed the original part of the original movie that I saw when I was in high school. Now, my science teacher wasn't going to tell me how to build it. He wanted me to figure it out for myself. And there was back then, there was no way to look it up online. And I got frustrated on figuring it out for myself. Then finally, he gave me one hint. He let me look at a picture in a psychology book for about 10 seconds. But he wanted me to figure it out myself how to make it. So what would you say were some of the biggest challenges you faced along the way? Um, and Well, high how- school was like the worst part of my life. Oh, how did you overcome that? Well, I, was, uh, I had some refuges away from bullying, and that was horses. And I had a friend that I've just written an article that's about how horses helped a person with autism. It's a paper that's published online now. It talks about how horses helped me out. And there were two ways they helped me out, uh, working in the horse barn. But the other thing is, was friends through the shared interest of riding mm-hmm. and getting horses uh, ready for show. And when we were doing riding activities, I was not getting bullied and teased. Same thing with electronics and model rockets. The students that were interested in those particular activities were not the bullies. And this is why I think it's so important for these kids to get friends through shared interest. Uh, it could be band. It could be the school play. It could be uh, cooking, art. It could be a lot of different things. That's where I had friends when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to have conversations with someone that has shared interests. Well, what, that's right. Yeah. And I had to, I was really bad about going on and on and on, talking about something that interested me, like carnival rides. And I would just go on and on talking about it to the point where people got bored with it. Yeah. And so I, I had to learn. You can tell that story twice, and that's it. Yes. And that's so funny because that's what our therapist tells our daughter now. Like she's so stuck on Marvel. I mean, you come across this all the time in your work, of course, and there's children that have their perseverative topic. And it's like, you know, check in. Do you think Michael wants you to talk about Marvel anymore? What else can you talk to him about? Well, what's the other thing is, is try to broaden interests. Let's say a kid likes cars. Mm -hmm. We can read about them. We can do math with cars. Um, Take that interest and broaden it. When I was in third grade, all I did was uh, draw the same horse head over and over again. And Mother would say, well, let's do a picture of a beach with watercolors or some other thing. And I was broaden art interest. You know, I liked the rotor carnival ride, and that was a sensory reason why I liked getting spun around in this big barrel and pushed up against the wall. Well, you can learn some physics about how that ride works and why you stay stuck to the wall. You see, that would be an example of broadening that interest. Such great advice from Temple Grandin. She is a true inspiration. We'll get back to that remarkable conversation in a moment. But first, we're going to hear from our Parent Autism Roundtable. As parents, we worry. Of course, we want our kids to succeed. But if there's one thing Temple Grandin teaches us, it's that there are plenty of reasons to be hopeful. So we asked the parents on our Autism Roundtable to share some of the hopes and dreams they have for their kids. I think really just to be at peace with who he is and just really to see how special and unique uh, he is because he does have significant empathy for friends. 
He has virtually no empathy for parents. I wish for him to be like in peace with himself and be happy with who he is and be loved. All the conversations we've had over the last few years have definitely sunk in and I see that in him working with other people. So I, th I think it's really just to find his passion and his purpose and just to really express that and not be attached to all these other sort of things, but just to like be and live. Just being a, a functioning adult in the world, given whatever passion she follows, but just to be able to live on her own and or find a partner or a group of friends and, and be just a contributing member of society in her own unique way. That's my biggest hope. You know, it's the same that you have for any of your children, right? It's you want them to be happy, you want them to be loved, you want them to love. Like that's, that's it. What else is there? I mean, there isn't anything else. I don't care if he makes money. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want him to be happy and feel fulfilled in his life. That's the most important thing. Wise words from the parents on our Autism Roundtable. Earlier, we were speaking with autism trailblazer Temple Grandin. She has written many books. One of them is called Thinking in Pictures. Oliver Sacks wrote in the foreword of this book that it was unprecedented because it was the first time anyone with autism had explained exactly how their mind works. So when I spoke with Dr. Grandin, I asked her to explain what she means when she talks about thinking in pictures. Well, everything I think about is a picture. Now, if you watch the HBO movie, the way it shows my thinking in pictures is really accurate. It shows exactly how I think. It's also associative. I think the best way for you to understand how I think in pictures is to uh, give me a keyword, but not something I can see in my office right now, not something common like house, dog, cat, or car. Give me a keyword that's a bit more original, and I will tell you how my mind um, kind of accesses it. It's sort of like Google for images. Drum kit. Okay, drum kit. I just saw a drum kit done the other day at a place I gave a talk, so I'm seeing that. Now I'm seeing a drum kit at a great big church, and I asked why they had plexiglass around the uh, drums, and they said that helped with the sound. And in this church, they had a giant train that went across the stage. They use carbon dioxide to make it go. So now I've gotten from drum kit to trains. Right. You see how there's an associative link. Now I'm seeing the train. I was just uh, going to the uh, post office today, and uh, we had to wait for the train to go through the intersection. You know, so I'm seeing the freight train that, that goes um, through our town. So that's how I got from drum kit to freight train. And then I can use that to solve problems. Like when I was designing things, I'm also a bottom-up thinker. You take, um, when I first started working on cattle handling design, I went to every feedlot in Arizona to, to work cattle. And there were some curved facilities that were around at the time. There were some that worked really well. There were some stuff that worked badly. I remember two feed yards that had identical systems, and one worked badly, and it was due to orientation to the sun. And then I figured out where there were layout mistakes. So then what I did was put all the good bits together and chuck out the bad bits to make new systems. Now, the thing about bottom-up thinking is the more data you load into the database, the better you think. So you're and that also helps get rid of rigid thinking, because then you can sort data into different categories, not just good and bad. You could have different degrees 
So you also participated in writing a children's book called Temple Did It, I Can Too. Well, uh, Jennifer Gilpin uh, wrote the book, and, and I just want to uh, motivate kids. You see, too many kids are letting autism become their whole identity. Now, autism is a very, very important part of who I am, but it's secondary to career and, you know, livestock industry, being a scientist and being a professor, doing my classes. That comes first. And autism is a very important part of who I am. I would not want to change. I like the logical way I think, but it's not my primary identity. I also feel very strongly that we've got to motivate kids. We have to motivate them to study. But I think another thing is we have to motivate them we're studying as a pathway to a goal. See, there's a lot of kids, good at one thing, bad at something else. I'm a visual thinker, absolutely cannot do algebra because there's nothing there to visualize. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm seeing kids right now being kept out of something like a skilled trade or out of auto mechanics because they can't do algebra. You don't need algebra for that. I'll tell you what you need algebra for. If you're a chemist, I also read a very interesting article in Wired magazine about the lunar lander computer and it crashed while the lunar lander was landing. The computer went down. And a very clever programmer at MIT figured out how to make sure that it always saved the navigation data. And so when it came back on 10 seconds later, the navigation still worked. And the only thing that's known about the guy who programmed that is he was reclusive and had a messy office. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) But he used algebra to make the computer have a priority that that navigation stuff has to be safe no matter what. But then you need the clever engineering department to make the spacesuit for walking on the moon. This is why you need both kinds of minds, the yeah. visual thinkers like me, mm-hmm. and then the more pattern mathematical thinkers to make the moon mission successful. And in my book, Animals in Translation, I describe how thinking in pictures helped me to understand animals because the first thing I did in working with cattle is I wanted to look at what are the animals seeing when they go through the chute. And cattle will stop if there's a coat on the fence. There's a vehicle parked next to the fence and they see the shiny metal of the vehicle. That will make them stop. Or there's a hose on the ground. Or a Other flag. Other people had noticed this stuff. And the reason they didn't notice it is they weren't visual thinkers. Now, I didn't know that at the time. When I started in my 20s, I thought everybody was a visual thinker. I didn't know that my thinking was different. So you have a remarkable connection with animals. Can you tell me why that relationship is so important to you? Well, I think it's because I think visually. Animals are sensory-based thinkers. They don't think in words. They think in pictures. Their memories are going to be pictures. And in Animals in Translation, I talk about the horse that was scared of black cowboy hats. He was abused by somebody wearing a black hat, terrified of black cowboy hats, fine with somebody with a white cowboy hat or a ball cap. Or the sound of this vehicle is the vehicle that comes and feeds me. Maybe this other vehicle is going to chase me around. So that their memory is the sound. There are some dogs that um, you know, can know the sound of their owner's car. So lack of empathy can be a trait sometimes associated with people on the spectrum, but yet your work requires that you very much empathize and connect with animals. So how do you respond to the idea that people with autism lack empathy? 
I learned a lot about animals scientifically, observing them. I mean, some people will say, well, the dog doesn't have emotions. Well, that's like stupid. Mm. You know, because neurologically, they've got all the, 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 the uh, subcortical structures where emotions are the same in all mammals. You know, it, it's, uh, what I have is sort of visual empathy. But do you feel love for the animals, too? Well, I really care about them. And I've got emotions, but I think they're probably more in the present. Yeah, and I've had to learn how to control anger because I got kicked out of high school for anger. <laughs> and I had to switch from anger to crying. And it's okay for, I tell guys, it's okay to cry. NASA space scientists cried when they shut down the shuttle. You've had so many big achievements because your thinking is different. But on a personal level, which ones feel the biggest to you? Which were the ones that made you say, wow, I actually did that? Well, actually, when I did those dip fat projects that were shown really nicely in the movie. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that motivated me to do those projects is a lot of people thought it was stupid. But I remember looking at the drawing I did for one of those projects. And when I got the drawing done, I almost couldn't believe that I had done it. You amazed yourself. I remember looking at the drawing and going... Somebody stupid doesn't do this drawing. Mm-hmm. You said, I am what I do more than what I feel. Can you That's explain right. what you mean by that? Well, I get great satisfaction out of doing stuff, whether it's uh, building something, but I also get great satisfaction when I get an a email or somebody calls me and they says, or they come up to me in the airport. That happens all the time. Yeah. And they'll say, like one lady at the airport said, Oh, thank you so much for your book, Thinking in Pictures. I now understand my engineer husband and it saved our marriage. <laughs> or my kid went to college because of one of your talks or one of your books. I get great satisfaction from that. That's Dr. Temple Grandin, scientist, author, autism trailblazer. You're listening to Life on the Spectrum, the Autism Family Podcast. I'm Katie Bennison. We hope you're enjoying this episode looking at success on the spectrum. And if you are enjoying it, please consider giving us a review. It'll help us reach more people and share with your friends. Our website is lifeonthespectrumpodcast.com. When you're a family living with autism, when you're a family living with autism, it is so easy to get bogged down by the challenges and by the tough times. So in this episode, we're focusing on success stories. Here are some of the amazing teens from our Autism Roundtable talking about some of the good things about being on the spectrum. I overheard my friend talking. Um, She said that um, I was autistic, and so um, she said, you're so fun-loving. It's being able to focus on anything you want, really. People with autism sometimes have heightened senses. Like, when I was little, I used to be super focused on World War II, and I was reading, like, history textbooks for grade 10. So, I really love bunnies. I can know random bunny facts off the top of my head. I know a lot about marine biology. I know what the Latin name of the salmon and the red rock and all the crabs are. And I also really like My Little Pony. If you just show me an image of any character, I can probably guess the name pretty easily. I also really like music. I've written a few songs and I'm a good singer. I think my creativity, I tend to be like very observant or so I've been told. That is one of the greatest things about autism. Fun-loving, 
focused, a knack for marine biology, lots of great reminders about the pluses of having autism from our teen roundtable. Temple Grandin talks a lot about the positive side of autism. She's living proof that people on the spectrum can dream big. As a young person, she loved animals and wanted to work with them. And even though she was badly bullied in school and faced huge challenges, she was determined to make her dreams a reality. As an animal scientist, she's an inspiration. But she's also had incredible success outside of animal science. Temple Grandin is a role model for thousands of families and people living with autism. So I had to ask for her advice on setting up kids on the spectrum for success. One of the things I did is I had to work very hard to make myself good at what I did. Another thing I'm finding, and I'm seeing a lot of problems now with a lot of students today, just regular students, their writing skills are terrible. And that's because when they were in elementary school and in high school, they weren't writing book reports and essays. And writing was a very important thing in my career because I would design something, and then I wrote about it. And there's a scene in the movie where I go up and I get the editor's card. That scene is real. I saw that if I wrote for that magazine, it would open a door. Yes. But then when I sent him the article a week later, and it was a summary of my master's thesis on squeeze shoots, they published it. Yes. And if my writing had been terrible, they wouldn't have published it. So what advice would you give to parents of kids with autism to set them up for success? Well, let's we have to work with ages. The other thing I think the problem with autism is when kids are really little and they're three, you're going to have kids that look really severe. I looked horrible when I was three. Um, and then when they, we, I had a lot of good early intervention, really super good, a lot of one-on-one with the teachers. Uh, you know, then you've got, you've got kind of get different levels. You've got people that are mathematicians. They ought to go to Silicon Valley. I've been out to Silicon Valley. They avoid all the labels. Half those programmers are on the spectrum, and they avoid the labels. And then you've got the art kind of people like me. Uh, skilled trades would be a good place for us to go. And the reason why I'm pushing the skilled trades, things like plumbing, electrical, fixing cars, airplanes, trains, boats, uh, machinists, and heating and air conditioning, because these are good jobs that will never get replaced by computers. You'll have a job for life. And then you've got individuals where that's not an option. And I really like what Stephen Hawking said about disability in an interview with the New York Times. He said, concentrate on the things. Your disability does not prevent you from doing well. And he could do math in the head really, really well. And he concentrated on that. Teens, I would say, we need to be working on teaching living skills and independent skills. And we need to find paper route substitutes. Okay, let's say it's a fully verbal kid. Walk dogs for the neighbors. Uh, if you belong to a church, church volunteer job, and it's on a schedule, you do it every week. They, and then instant, they're legal. I want to see them in the real workforce. And the thing you've got to be careful about is not too much multitasking. Multitasking is a real problem. A super busy McDonald's would not be a good choice. Let's get something like an ice cream shop that's not as hectic, and there's been some good successes in ice cream shops. Um, you know, a quieter kind of retail store. But uh, uh, office supply stores been good for some people. And I've had parents admit that after their kid was out doing these things, he kind of blossomed. But there's a tendency to overprotect. I'm seeing 16-year-olds, fully verbal, 
good students, and they've never gone shopping by themselves. And some parents have trouble with letting go on having the kid learn stuff like shopping and bank account, just basic stuff. If I hadn't learned how to drive, I would not have had any career in the cattle industry, pure and simple. Due to the multitasking issue, it's going to take longer to learn. I did 200 miles on my aunt's dirt roads before we touched traffic. Wow. That solves the multitasking issue. Mm -hmm. So let's start out in the middle of a great big empty parking lot. For me, it was out in the middle of the horse pasture. That's where I started. (laughs) And, And where there's nothing to hit. And learn how to operate the vehicle. But it's going to take longer. And lots of times, drivers that chucks them in the deep end too fast. What advice would you give to kids that are being bullied? Well, there are some kids that get bullied so bad in high school, it may have to be taken out of that school. And now if you homeschool your kid, you need to be getting him into a lot of activities where he's doing other social activities with other kids. Instantly, he's legal. I want him in the workforce. What should they think if, they, if they're getting bullied? Because that, you know, unfortunately it happened to you. How did you deal with it? Well, the only thing that saved me is that there were refuges away from bullying, and they were the shared interest things. Horseback riding, when I was working in the barn, the bullies didn't come around the barn very much. Uh, my bad places were the dining room and the parking lot. Mm-hmm. But what do you say and to I'd yourself? I walked through the parking lot and they called me bones because I was skinny. Yeah, that's bones and tape recorder were the two things they used to call me, and I didn't know why they called me tape recorder, but it was because I always used the same phrases. But then, as I got out and I did more things, then I learned more different phrases, and I'm gonna be less like a tape recorder. You see, what you got to do with these kids, you got to get them out and fill the database. So now, what do you do about sensory problems? Well, I talked to one mom. Her kid was afraid of the vacuum cleaner, so she gave the kid the vacuum cleaner. And says, "Okay, you can turn it on and play with it." And you got to loving it. One of the ways to help on sound sensitivity is when the child can control it. He or she turns that hairdryer on and off. Oh, yeah. We had that problem with Sophie in the public washrooms. Uh, we had to write a oh, social... Those are awful. Oh, awful. We... Uh, the problem you've got there is you can't control that stuff in the mm-hmm. public bathrooms. You just can't control it. That's where you put a headset on and go in there. Yeah. Well, uh, we... But then if you wear a headset all the time, your hearing's going to get more sensitive. Mm-hmm. because the brain will try to compensate. So what you want to do is you can have a headset with you all the time, but try not to wear it. And those public bathrooms are just so horrible for uncontrollable, unpredictable, loud noises. That you wear the headset in there. Yeah. But then other places, you want to try to not wear it, but you have it there in case you need it. Yeah. See, again, that gives the kid control. Yeah. So what about adults on the spectrum? Do you have any advice for them? Well, uh, friends who shared interests, I'm always, that's always important. You know, one of the things I've read about depression, there's a thing called activation therapy. And basically what you do with that, they gave an example of a lady who loved cats. Okay. And she was depressed. So get her out of the house and she's going to work for cat rescue. In other words, find something the person's interested in and get them out doing it. I mean, that's not going to cure all depression. But just getting them out doing stuff can often be really helpful. And they actually call it activation therapy. But again, it gets back to that shared interest thing, where they're doing something with other people with something they care about. Join a garden club. Join a book club. 
What do you like to do in your off time? Oh, I like to watch the science fiction movies. I loved Avatar. I thought that was just such a wonderful movie. Mm. Um, uh, it's also just what we would do in our off time. I remember we would sit and have dinner with the construction crews, and we'd talk about two things, how stupid the suits were and the managers were. And the other thing we talked about was how to build stuff. Yeah. That was just you know really fascinating conversation. Temple, on behalf of everyone that is listening to Life on the Spectrum, thank you for having such a big heart. Okay, great to talk to you. Bye. Okay, yeah, bye. Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University and a prominent author and public speaker. She's a hero in the autism world and certainly in our household. I'm so grateful that she took the time to join us and to give us her advice on how to succeed in life. Speaking of advice, here's some wisdom from our roundtable of parents who have teenagers with autism. You'll hear a few of my own thoughts in here, too. I mean, I think at the beginning it's overwhelming, right? And it's like, how am I going to cope with this? And I can't do this. I, at least that was my reaction. Um, and it gets better. Like, it definitely, it gets better over time, and they get older, they learn things from you, you learn things, like, things improve, things just get, they get better. The gift it's given me is to be a lot kinder to myself, and as I said earlier, uh, you know, just try and shift in your head, because there's a lot of problems every day, or, or we have significant problems, it seems, every day. You know, what is it I can learn, or what's the opportunity in this, or what's the question you can ask yourself, or I ask myself whenever, you know, I'm stuck in it. And invariably, I always get this like incredible answer back in, in terms of this gift. And it, it, you don't see it at the moment, but you see it later. Sophie is a gift. I have learned so much through having her as a daughter, and it has opened my eyes, and it has made me more tolerant and caring and non-judgmental of others. And I know that she's going to be fine. She's quirky. Aren't we all? I'm nowhere near the person I was five years ago. I, I mean, I've grown in ways I didn't even think were, you know, I had possibilities. So I would say, you know, just face yourself, be kind to yourself, and know, just trust that it will get better. And if you can, find people that, you know, whether it's online or better if you can in person, but find people who have had similar things that are going on because it helps immensely to talk to other people and know that you're not the only one. You, you just kind of become more accepting of people's very variable behaviors and different things you, you would have reacted to strongly when you were younger and in a more neurotypical, like, part of that group. And then suddenly you're, oh, I'm a lot more open to things. You know, everyone has something in their lives. There's a separation in their family, or one kid has dyslexia, or there's cancer in, with the grandfather or something. And we all cope, right? And we all have issues. And autism is a label. It doesn't necessarily mean that life is over. And hopefully this podcast will help other families understand that you're not alone and it's all good. It, it's going to be fine. You just have to reach out and not shut yourself in. And that's about it for today's episode of Life on the Spectrum. 
It's also the last episode of our first season. I really hope that you found it helpful and inspiring. And if you want some more helpful resources, check out our website, lifeonthespectrumpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook. I want to thank our writers of this season, Jennifer Moss and Jennifer Van Evra. And special thanks to Craig Zarazin at Wave Productions for recording our parent and teenage roundtables and my interview with Temple Grandin. Just before I let you go, I want to make sure to tell you about our special bonus episode. It's my complete interview with Michelle Garcia Winner on social thinking. It's on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, to end the season on a successful note, here are some parting thoughts from our Autism Teen Roundtable. I asked them to talk about some of their hopes and dreams for the future, because really, it's their voices that matter the most. I'm Katie Benison. Here's to life on the spectrum. What are your plans and dreams for when you grow up? I'd like to be a marine biologist and own an apartment or own anything that I can live in in Hawaii or anywhere where I can surf. I'm going to start small. I'm going to move into a little studio apartment. I'm going to get a little steady job. Maybe one day get a better job that I'd like. I hope to be a railway conductor one day and if not to be a business owner. My dream property will probably be a little cottage by the water. I'd find a cute guy that also likes bunnies and maybe my little pony as well. I don't know. I think I want to be a celebrity of some kind. I think maybe a writer, probably. I would really like to become a musician, an artist, or an animator, or something like that. Probably create like graphic novels and stuff because uh, I like I I create like a bunch of creative stories like from the dreams that I have or just ideas that pop into my head, you know. And I'm also very good at drawing. When I'm older, I want to have my own movie about this superhero I created, who's actually my alter ego, and so she's autistic, and her name is El Autismo, and. El Autismo's superpower is remembering things others may forget. Never underestimate the power of autism.